0: sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And hear the word of God. For you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. So that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to an innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn. We're registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than able. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And let us pray together. Father, in in some ways, uh, this is a familiar passage. We love to speak of worshiping God with reverence and godly fear. Uh, But in other ways, perhaps a a strange passage and, and not so often spoken of by Christians. The two mountains, Lord, pray that you would help us to see the glories and the blessings that await us when we come unto you, not at Mount Sinai, but at Mount Zion. And may the sermon be of some help to this end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're proceeding along here in the closing chapters of the book of Hebrews, the more practical portions of the epistle, having considered the priesthood of Jesus Christ in such a detailed manner, we must bear in mind what he is exhorting these Christians to do. Ever since the end of chapter 10, he's been exhorting them to remember that whatever struggles they may have to face as Christian people, you remember at the end of chapter 10, he lists a series of those things. They had lost their property and so forth, though none of them yet had lost their lives. In light of those struggles and hardships, they must constantly bear in mind two things. First, what it is they are seeking, and second, what they already possess. They are seeking a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, as we found was the case of the pilgrim fathers, as recounted in Hebrews chapter 11. These pilgrims who, who lived by faith and possessed nothing of this world, who longed for the city that is to come. And yet, even now, it isn't as though the pilgrim has nothing, for by faith he has a great deal. Uh, which, again, is something we have seen throughout the epistle. That now, by faith, the believer is able to apprehend the glories and the joys of heaven itself, entering now through the priesthood of Jesus Christ, who has gone there before us. Now we are able to draw near through his priesthood and enter into the holy place by faith. This is the sense we get, uh, again, returning to the uh, the exhortation that we find in chapter 10, now verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In other words, let us now by faith draw near through the veil, even into heaven itself and there meet with God. Yes, and all the more as the day is approaching, verse 25. And so we notice as we consider the exhortation of the epistle, That there is a kind of balancing act which only faith comprehends, one which glories in the present portion and all that we now possess as believers, but which at the same time urgently presses on to possess them more fully. In other words, to complete the race and to enter into heaven itself in all of its fullness. And it's only as we bear these greater realities in mind that we find the inspiration to do so. I mean the inspiration to run the race which is set before us with endurance, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You see, even then, he is speaking in a way that is meant to inspire, to capture the heart of the believer. Don't lose sight of those who surround you, who have gone before you and who are calling you there. Recognize most of all that Jesus Christ himself has run and completed this race, now becoming the author and the finisher of our faith. And if only we will follow him then we too will complete our journeys in faith. And thus we ought not to allow anything to detract from our pursuit of this or our present possession. Sin, for one thing, thinking of uh, now what he says in chapter 12, must be mortified constantly because it's just a distraction which trips us up and slows us down. And afflictions too, as we saw last time, if not turned to our profit, will have the same effect. They'll bog us down they cause us to stand still rather than to press onward. All of which then brings us to the present verses, which is, as I'm saying, just, uh, just an exposition or an expansion of the same theme and the same exhortation. For, he says, that's the first word. He is continuing on the same argument, the same admonition. He is supplying another compelling reason to run the race with endurance. To not give up in the face of so many hardships and turn away as so many have. His argument here is familiar. In fact, uh, I think I realized in preaching this sermon in the early service that really, if anything, verses 18 through 24 function as a kind of summary of the entire epistle. We find there the same old contrast between the old and the new. The old covenant which began with Moses and the new covenant which began with Christ. And which superseded the old covenant and made it of no effect. And then in contrasting those two covenants, he speaks of two mountains. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Well, again, he's speaking of what we have. Our present portion as Christian people and recipients of a new covenant. How much better it is than the meager portions of the old covenant. And so it is a contrast. But it's also more than that. He's also telling us how much the church now, as Matthew Henry says, resembles the state of the church in heaven. And so, again, he captures both aspects, the glories of the present portion, but also in this, a taste of the glories we one day hope to possess. Well, look first at one side of the contrast, Mount Sinai. He says, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire and so forth. He doesn't tell us the name of the mountain, but it's obvious he's referring to Mount Sinai. It's obvious that Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 4 stand uh, behind this. He's describing exactly what we read there. Mount Sinai, which we will see next week in the evening sermon. Israel came to and camped at the foot of. In Exodus chapter 19, they came to the mountain as part of their journeys through the wilderness. And it's very interesting to read what happened there just before the Lord gave the law in chapter 20 through Moses. It is actually a very solemn and terrifying experience. There you might say they met with God. Though not in a way that pleased them and certainly not with any sense of familiarity, they met with God at a distance which is part of the irony here. The mountain they came to, the first characteristics, uh, characteristic by which it is described, you have not come to a mountain which may be touched. Well, they did. They came to a mountain that might be touched since it was a physical mountain. And yet what we discover is that they were forbidden to do so. In fact, they were told that if anyone should come near and touch the mountain, that he would be killed, even if his beast did so. The beast would be killed. Stay at a distance, God said. Do not draw near. Already we are aware of the vast differences between the old and the new covenants. And everything that happened there struck their hearts with a sense of fear. The blazing fire, the blackness, the darkness, the tempest. The sound of the trumpet that grew louder and louder. And the voice which spoke from the mountain. All the people who were there, we read in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 19, trembled. They wanted it to be over. Even Moses, we read here, was exceedingly afraid and trembled. But looking at this list of characteristics and uh, terrible happenings, I think we could call them, that occurred at Mount Sinai, we should also recognize that each of them is a characteristic which belongs to the old covenant and describes the nature of the old covenant. I mean that they are characteristic of the old covenant itself, which they were meant to be. And so for one thing, we see how the people were kept at a distance, how they were made aware of God, but in a way that unsettled them deeply. All that they experienced was meant to give them a sense of his holiness. He declares to them in verse six that his desire for them is that they might become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, indicating that God wished for them As his people to partake of his holiness, a holiness they here beheld and which terrified them. But through it all, it was the holiness of God that was so deeply impressed upon them. The thunder, the fire, the mountain that quaked here was the presence of the Lord. And it was awful to behold. It struck fear in their hearts. And you see. Another characteristic of the Old Covenant that we notice here, but which we also notice throughout the Old Covenant, more or less, is that there was nothing here to placate that fear. They were simply left with it. It was an administration of darkness and gloom, an administration where the people were commanded to stand at a distance or else be stoned. As I say, that was something that continues even once the priesthood is established. And then for all the glory... Of God's holiness displayed here. We also notice. How it was cast in earthly garments. Everything that is described here. Is an earthly element. Not a heavenly. It appeared. I mean the glory of God appeared in the thunder. It appeared at the mount that may be touched. And so forth. Again. If you go through the list. You will notice. Each of them were earthly elements. Beggarly by comparison to the heavenly. And so it was. We realize and we discover in reality a vast condescension on the part of God to appear in, that, in this way at Sinai. It was almost as much for him to conceal his glory as it was for him to reveal it, which I think the darkness and the cloud indicated more than anything else. And so Matthew Henry says, and I do not think unfairly, it was a dreadful and terrible dispensation. You remember I asked the question, would you have wanted to be at the mountain? I don't know anyone who would. Not even Moses wanted to be there. But still, there at the mountain, we find God speaking. There was a voice to be heard. And it was from the mount, as you know, that God gave the Ten Commandments through His servant Moses, which was the strongest indication yet of His holiness in that he required such holiness of the people as found in the in the law. Yet again we read after he gives the law in chapter 20 verses 18 through 21, I won't read that, but summarizing in essence, we find them again terrified and afraid and wishing that the Lord would simply stop speaking. But if we are to understand the true force of the contrast on this side of the contrast, we must focus on the fact of God's speech. Since that once again becomes the focus in verse 25, as it had been throughout the whole of the epistle. See that you do not refuse him who speaks, he says in verse 25. Here was God speaking to Israel in this terrible, dreadful way. Yet the point is, God was speaking to man. That was the most solemn and holy fact of all. And we're brought once more to what is said at the beginning of the epistle, chapter 1, verse 1, where he says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke. Well, here God was speaking. But the greatest tragedy of all, as you know, and as is recounted in the book of Hebrews, and as we've been seeing in the book of Exodus, is that though God was dealing with them in a way that manifested his holiness and in a way which he indicated was meant to impart that very holiness to them, he was speaking to them and giving them his law and revealing his glory in a way which we admit was terrifying, but which could have been a great blessing to them. The tragedy of it all was that they did not listen. But come to the other side of the contrast and consider the situation in which the church finds herself today. The whole force of the contrast is you haven't come to this mountain. You've come to this mountain. We don't find ourselves beloved as the church of the New Testament at the foot of Mount Sinai. And I think we can say, understanding the contrast, thank God for that. It was all such a terrible experience. No, but he says, you've come to Mount Zion, which is altogether different. This immediately appears when in his first description he calls it, not surprisingly given the emphasis of the epistle, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Well, if you've been paying attention to what he says in chapter 11, that is a perfectly fitting thing to say. It is though he were saying. Again, calling to mind that earlier quote from Matthew Henry. And I think we'll see this in all of the characteristics which he gives about this mountain. See how much the church resembles the church in heaven. Again, not how much she differs from the church of old, but how much she resembles the church as she will be in heaven and even the church as she now is in heaven. And so the contrast with the first description is already as great as it could possibly be. The church of old was clothed clothed in earthly forms, earthly elements, whereas the new church resides in heaven itself, if only by faith. That is why we think of the differences between new covenant worship and old covenant worship. New covenant worship is more spiritual and thus simpler. It all has to do with this point. Matthew Henry once more. Now, in coming to Mount Zion, believers come into heavenly places and into a heavenly society, heavenly places that is heaven itself. And especially the true tabernacle spoken of in chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy place. Places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. New covenant worship, beloved, has to do with that. It deals with that place, not the earthly tabernacle, but the heavenly one where Christ now resides, where the living God dwells. And our great high priest appears in his presence continually on our behalf and for our salvation. It is not an earthly city, but a heavenly one. It is, as I say, where the pilgrim fathers long to be, chapter 11. But there's no way to get here. Again, thinking about the nature of the new covenant, and you will see this, no way to get here but by faith, since it resides not in this world. Faith is what enables us to draw near. It is a getting into heaven. It is a continual coming to this heavenly city and entering in. And there is in this, I'm, I'm speaking of new Covenant worship, something about which I hope we're all familiar, a truth which is difficult to express, the heavenly character of new covenant worship. And yet surely we would agree that all of the glories and all of the joys of the saints now on earth enjoyed in worship have to do with our current converse with heaven, not with the earthly elements uh, which we find here. In fact, all of those things are kept to an absolute minimum. Spiritual truths and spiritual blessings for spiritual people. That's the essence of new covenant worship. Here we deal more with heaven than with this world. We are brought into heaven before the time. And heaven is brought to us. We deal less with the earthly elements and more with the heavenly realities. As I say, it's a truth which is difficult to express. But no doubt one which he who is spiritual and he who has faith enjoys and knows. And for him it is a growing experience. Well, let us go on with the list, not just heavenly places, but also a heavenly company, as Matthew Henry speaks. And here I might take three of the characteristics and and combine them to innumerable angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That is, again, the heavenly company. This is basically a repetition of what was said in chapter 12, verse one. The great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us as we run this race, we do not stand alone and afraid at the foot of Mount Sinai. We have come to something more glorious and part of its glory is the company that can be found there. The angels who worship God in heaven can be found there at Mount Zion, worshiping God. Enlisted in the service of the saints, helping them to run with endurance, protecting them from all kinds of evils. There we also find the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Speaking of the church universal, every believer in every age and in every place, we think too meanly of the church if we locate all her glories in one place. No, to run this race is to be joined with every Christian who ever ran it and who is running it even now. Every single one. All who have their names written in this book can be found at this mountain. And then the spirits of the just made perfect. That is all who have died in faith. All who have finished the race and who have been made perfect. Heavenly company. But greater still is the fact of God himself who dwells in the city and whom we approach as we come. To come to Mount Zion is to come to God. The judge of all, he says, and I would just pause here to wonder. In describing the contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, if you would have thought to put it that way, if you would, would have thought to comfort and to encourage the New Testament church. That at Mount Zion you will find God, the judge of all. Does that not simply bring us back to Sinai? No, it doesn't. To speak of God in this way might at first have a frightening appearance, but for the priesthood of Jesus Christ. You can't forget all that he said throughout the epistle, nor will he let you for a moment because he immediately says it himself. He says to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. To speak of God, the judge of all and define him thus at this mountain is not so much frightful. As it is wonderful to the believer for there as I say he also finds Jesus and his blood the blood is sprinkling suddenly the appearance of God as a judge takes on a new aspect not that of condemnation but of reconciliation for the blood of Christ our mediator has made it so and God the judge has accepted that blood. There at Mount Zion, these three are in agreement. The judge, the mediator, and the blood. All three speaking the same thing. Pleading the single truth that in the blood of Jesus shed on the cross and now sprinkled on the altar, the just shall live by faith. Do you remember that was quoted from Habakkuk at the end of chapter 10, verse 38. The just shall live by faith. And just think of what is being said there. Who is he describing? The one who has faith is just. In other words, he's justified by the judge. We even have an indication of it here. Speaking of those who died in faith, spirit of just men made perfect. Do you understand what it is to deal with this judge on the basis of the blood of the mediator? In other words, what he's saying, the just shall live by faith, is that there is justice for the sinner. But of a kind which he finds quite surprising. Not the justice of condemnation. That is not the way he meets with God. The judge of all at this mountain. Though if he sought him at Mount Sinai he may. No it is the justice of free justification. Found in Christ's blood. An atonement which puts away sin once for all. And a righteousness which the believer comes to possess fully and freely by faith alone. The just shall live by faith. This is justice indeed. The judge of all men acting with perfect justice. His justice demands that every transgression of the law be punished to the full extent of the law. A justice which is seen, you will remember, in the sad story of Abel, which is referenced here. Whose blood being shed cried out for vengeance, that is, for justice. And this was a cry that God, the judge of all, did not ignore. For the judge of all The earth will not fail to do what is right. Though even then, if you remember, the justice which he has for Cain is mingled with mercy. But we're able to see in that incident that God is indeed the judge of all. And as Cain came to experience, nothing escapes his his notice, least of all sin. Sin is something he, as the judge of the universe, will always notice and he will always punish Every sin cries out for vengeance as Abel's blood teaches us. And yes, it will be punished. Yet for all the justice found in the speech which Abel's blood gave before the judge of all, there is far more, not less, to be found in Christ's blood. That blood deals as well with the same God, the judge of all. For there we find the justice which is not mingled with mercy, A display of justice that is perfect and complete. The full cup of God's wrath poured out in a single episode upon a single person. Surely no single man could bear such a burden but the very son of God himself. And yet the amazing assertion and the amazing thing that we find in the Gospels and as is gloried here in the book of Hebrews is that. Here was the very son of God himself daring to bear that burden for us upon the cross. Here was one indeed who could bear the burden. If only he would. And yet we must realize the weight was so great that even he struggled to bear it. I mean, it wasn't easy even for him to do. And so we read in the same epistle, chapter five, verses seven and eight. Speaking of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. The point is, thank God, he did bear it and he did so fully, perfectly and finally. Here is the most wonderful truth of all. That a perfect man, even the son of God himself, should suffer the full extent of God's wrath for sin for me. That he and not we should shed his blood for sin. And that he should die that we might live. Surely we are bound to admit that such an arrangement cannot fail to satisfy God's justice. That if the judge of all should judge him of all people in my place, he freely offering himself for me. Then there could be no injustice in him pardoning me now. In him declaring uh, as we read in chapter 8 verse 12. A quotation from Jeremiah 31. And what is the essence of the new covenant. Found on the basis of Christ's blood. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. I'm saying there's no injustice in saying that. In him saying that. In fact, what I'm saying is this very justice compels him to do so. It compels him now to pardon for there's no sin left to punish. Christ has done all and there's nothing left for me or for God to do, but to accept that he has done it and done it perfectly. He has forever put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. That is the great assertion of this epistle. And that is true justice. Not that the not that God should pardon the sinner without reason, but having found adequate reason in the blood that was shed on Calvary to pardon without any hesitation whatsoever. There is no injustice found at the cross nor at this mountain. There is rather a display of justice so perfect and so glorious as to make us wonder. The judge of all acting in such a way that sin is not only punished, but pardoned. Only God could devise such a scheme. Only he could achieve such a feat. And do you see what the apostle sees when he comes to this mountain and what he would have us to see as well? How the blood of Jesus speaks better things than Abel's ever did in the presence of the judge of all. Not justice that is bare and cold and merciless, but justice still and of a kind that is full of mercy and love and grace. Justice poured out. Justice satisfied. And justice which makes mercy all the sweeter and reasonable. Well come to the mount. Mount Zion. And you will see it too. You will find blessings innumerable. Blessings that could never be found elsewhere. The blessings which are found in the blood of Jesus Christ. But having considered the contrast. Which as I say is something uh, like a. Summary of the entire epistle. Contrast of the Old and New Covenant seen in the two mountains. We are left with the question practically what we are to do with this knowledge seeing, he says, that we have not come to this mountain but to that. Which is a question he answers in verses 25 through 29. Well, you see, for one thing, for all the differences between the two, there is this one similarity and it is a big one. It's one I've indicated already. That in both, God is speaking. For each of these is called a covenant. The old and new covenants. And a covenant is an arrangement that God makes with man. It thus it, it thus involves his speech. Where God utters his will. And the stipulations and the promises and the curses of the covenant. And yes, you see. Both covenants. Have curses associated with them. Not just stipulations and promises. I want you to obey. I promise to bless you. But curses. And in fact. It would be wrong. And a grievous misunderstanding of the new covenant. To ever say or to think. That there are no curses associated with it. And yet it seems to be a very common. Misconstruction of the new covenant. The curses work like this. Woe to the man who heeds not what God has said. Which stands out, uh, as you know, very clearly in the Old Covenant. Uh, you read a long list of covenant curses pronounced upon the covenant breaker. And this is such a prominent feature, uh, as I say, it is the temptation of some to think of it in exclusively in terms of the Old Covenant. But in truth, any honest and careful student of the Bible uh, turns to the pages of the New Testament, especially as he reads the Gospels, he becomes aware of the same exact element, the element of curse. You think, for instance, of the woes which Jesus pronounces in the Gospels. Woes which he says, in fact, will be far worse than anything that happened under the Old Covenant. And what Jesus is indicating by that is something that is being said here. That given the greater realities of the New Covenant, the curses will only be greater which befall those who break this covenant. And so it is the differences they share, the Old and New Covenants, that actually underscore this point very strongly, the element of curse. Many have wrongly deduced that uh, that for Mount Zion to be a mountain of grace, as opposed to Mount Sinai, means that we can sin freer here, that it's safer to sin... At Mount Zion than it was at Mount Sinai. You might have been stoned or killed at Mount Sinai. But in the dispensation of grace. It's safer to sin. Well that's the greatest mistake a man could ever make. For there is only grace where there's first been judgment. And where there's been judgment as we find at the cross there's a judge and what of him? Have we forgotten about him? That to come to Mount Zion is to come to God the judge of all. The God about whom it is said that he is a consuming fire, verse 29. You see, when he says that, that isn't a description of the old covenant. It is in a way, but he's speaking of the new covenant for our God is a consuming fire. Did we think that was only true of God at Mount Sinai? No, it is true still. And if anything, it's clearer now than ever. God's grace, beloved, is not seen in his casual attitude about sin. It is seen rather in how severely he has punished it at the cross and the great cost by which grace was purchased and grace was bestowed. And to become aware of that severity only underscores the severity that might befall us should we refuse him now. You see, what he's saying is that when God speaks, the most dangerous thing you could do is to ignore it, to turn away in indifference. That isn't something that was only dangerous at Mount Sinai. It's something that's even more dangerous now. To imagine now that Christ, God's very son, has shed his blood for sinners. God offering peace on the terms of that blood. That the sinner might safely refuse those terms. To imagine that there is hope in some other way. When he's plainly telling you this is the only way. Do you think that he who offered pardon on the very terms of the blood of his own dear son will pardon you in any other way? I tell you, he will not. And I suppose the worst thing that could ever happen to a man is to imagine he has come to Mount Zion only to discover when it was too late that he has come in reality to Mount Sinai. But look at verse eight, verse 28, as we close Uh, a verse, which is familiar And uh, often quoted by by Presbyterians, especially uh, serving God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, something that we uh, hope that we do to some measure in our worship, in contrast to so much of the worship that you find today in the church. There's a great deal that could be said about this verse, a whole sermon that could be preached, but that really isn't my interest here. My interest is only for you to see that this is the most natural thing in the world for him to say now, given everything that he's just said. Understand that he is describing our approach to Mount Zion and the way that we ought to come. Well, for one thing, he's pleading for a gracious disposition or perhaps gratitude. Let us have grace. The the translation is capable of either rendering and your various translations will render it one way or the other. Either let us have grace or let us have gratitude. Either way, he's saying, let us see that Mount Zion is not a covenant of works And let us be thankful for that. Pure grace is what we find there. And thus pure gratitude. You can't come to Mount Zion by way of works. Only grace, which is to say only by faith. And then he says, uh, what is uh, the more familiar phrase, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Again, I don't think uh, that, that we could ever quote those words As Presbyterians who love Presbyterian worship, without thinking of the context in which this phrase was uttered, the totality of the epistle that stands behind it, or perhaps just the summary that he just gave of the two mountains. Think of what it is he's saying now to come to this mountain. And think of the kind of approach that you ought to have. It's also natural at this point. A God who is holy and whose salvation displays his own holiness ought to be worshipped in a way of holiness. In other words, we don't come to this mount carelessly. And yet how many treat the new covenant like that? Falsely deducing because this mountain is less terrifying. It might come to it might. It, we might come to it Carelessly. Now, to come in faith, which I've said is the only way to come, is to come by the priesthood of Jesus Christ. But that is a way, as we've seen, of holiness, pure holiness. It is to deal with holy things, the blood of the Lamb and the heavenly sanctuary. It is to come by way of the perfect priesthood of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying very simply is this. Let us indicate that we know it in our approach. Reverence and godly fear. Do you know anything of this as you come into church to deal with the blood and with God on the basis of the blood is the most solemn thing in the world? How can a man approach this mount in any other way than with reverence and fear? It is to come to terms of peace with the judge of all on the basis of the blood of his own dear son. Who could ever do so casually without a sense of what he was doing? Or the God with whom he was dealing. Oh that we would have some sense of this reverence and godly fear. Yes. But also grace. Let us have grace. By which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen. And let us now come to the table.